0: And we're back You an all-new Keep It. I'm Ira.
3: I'm Aida. See? Beat you this time. Yes.
0: Oh, my God. I feel <laughs> emasculated. <laughs> <laughs>
3: That's I'm Louis Fertel. Hello.
0: I saw Aida in the Wild last yes. night. Yes. Oh, yeah. You guys were at the Troubadour. A loose yes. Aida. My yeah.
3: first time at the Troubadour. What a beautiful venue. Like, what a cute, intimate environment.
0: Yeah. Uh, it was nice seeing something there that wasn't like Carly Rae Jepsen or yeah. Kim Petras. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's
4: such a haunted place, because literally, really? like, for instance, John Lennon was thrown out of the trou- troubadour during a
0: Smothers Brothers show once. Oh it's just one God. of those storied
4: L.A. places where, like, Linda Ronstadt became famous.
0: and Elton yeah. John, mm-hmm. mm, yeah, his, like, American um, shows were there. They're featured in Rocket Man. Okay. Uh, but we were there to see our friend, my friend, Vincent. Uh, who is a... Who was amazing. Beautiful voice. And yeah.
3: I went, I discovered Vincent from Ira's story and then in that at the same week my friend was like, my friend who I went to Berkeley with is having a show. Do you want to come? And then I went and it was Vincent. Yeah. So it was perfect. It was absolutely perfect.
0: Amazing voice. Great vocals. I'm People fed. should listen to him.
3: I'm so fed. If you have
0: not. You're fed. From
3: that night, the girls were eating. Yeah. <laughs> eating. <laughs>
0: Speaking of the girls, we neglected last week, I think, to touch on Natalie Portman's dress. Right. Um, and her dress at the Oscars was a subtle tribute to female filmmakers uh, who did not get recognition at the Oscars this year. So she had, you know... Um, Lulu Wang, Celine Sciamma. um Greta Gerwig. Yeah, you know. And um it was just a small part of our ground, so you really sort of had to look. Um
3: Wasn't it like a cape? Yeah. Like a cape attachment. It was a
0: cape attachment and like, you know, it was it was very subtle. Mm-hmm. Uh however, it didn't go over well with Some people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) First, of course, it was some people on social media trying to call out Natalie for not having worked with that many female directors. Mm -hmm. Uh, And one of those people, of course, was uh, town crier Rose McGowan, (laughs) who said, I find Portman's type of activism deeply offensive to those of us who actually do the work. I'm not writing this out of bitterness. I am writing out of disgust. Just so you know. I guess my feeling is it would be more hypocritical to me if she had worn that cape 20
4: years ago and then only worked with male directors. But yeah. we all realize now that there's this huge problem that needs to be corrected. So I don't really see the harm
0: in her wearing it. Yeah. Uh, and Rose continued with, I just want her and other actresses to walk the walk and called it. Who's the- to say she's not? Yeah. yeah. I called it the kind of protest that gets rave reviews from the mainstream media for its bravery and. Imagine how tired Rose is. Right. (laughs) You don't have to imagine. She tells you.
3: (laughs) Like you said, Lewis, I feel like it's not fair to fault her for not working with male directors. I think the other thing that Rose was critiquing her on was not hiring female, excuse me, like women who were executives at her company, at her production company. Maybe I think that she's more culpable for that. Mm -hmm.
0: Not -hmm. the first thing. But Natalie's response was she stated that the past few years have seen a blossoming of directing opportunities for women due to the collective efforts of many people who have been calling out the system. The gift has been these incredible films. I hope that what was intended as a simple nod to them does not distract from their great achievements. And responding to Rose's claim specifically, she said, It's true I've only made a few films with women. In my long career, I've only gotten the chance to work with female directors a few times. I've made shorts, commercials, music videos, and features with Myra Cohen, Mira Rebecca Slotowski, Anna Homer, Sophia Coppola, Shirin Neshat, and herself. Unfortunately, the unmade films I have tried to make are a ghost history, as she goes into the fact that she's had the experience of helping get female directors hired on projects and then they were forced out because of working conditions, or other female-directed films facing scrutiny. You know, getting into festivals, getting distribution, and getting accolades from other gatekeepers. Uh, And there are actually reports of other movies she'd been signed on with uh, that initially had female directors who had to exit for some reason or another. And I think part of the conversation is it's hard to get female directors work. Yeah. Even Mm -hmm. when you're Natalie Portman, you know? Uh, And so I don't think it's been lack of trying on her part. Yeah, I also...
4: I mean, like, how much was she supposed to do single-handedly as an actress over the years to make female directors occur? I mean, exactly. like, the, the the problem is that there aren't enough, right? Or we don't encourage them to enter the industry, or there's not opportunities for them, you know. So, uh, but yeah. it, it seems like now Natalie Portman's really in a position to be proactive about it. Yeah.
3: Also, at the Oscars, the only person who was still, I mean, actively having that conversation was Natalie Portman, at least in a very visible way. So it makes me ask the question of when can you start protest? Like, when can a person regardless of their history, start protest. Do you need to have an entirely clean slate? That doesn't make any sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
4: Anyway. She seems pretty egoless about being called out, though. So, I, And I yeah. feel like that's part of being uh, a celebrity in 2020 or whatever. Like, for, Take, for instance, Jane Fonda's protest, still garnering some criticism from people who claim it's stunty or whatever. But, it, you know, it's like, who cares? Good. Take yeah. the hit and keep going. Keep doing yeah. it.
0: I think we'll get into that a bit when we talk later about some activism from a one Jamila (laughs) Jamil. We will be getting into that entire hotbed of a debate. Uh, We will also be talking about Bloomberg Mm -hmm. spending millions on memes. Beautiful. Because that's a thing you do now in 2020. (laughs) Teens (laughs) love it. (laughs) Do it Uh, for them. uh, We will also be having a conversation with Heather Graham. Legend. Yeah. So, we will be right back. Have you all noticed your Instagram being terrorized with Bloomberg memes?
3: Unfortunately, yes.
0: All Uh. of my screens.
4: I can't watch Jeopardy without hearing from this bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Is he
0: in the... Final answer? Yeah, he's hiding in the clues. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll take Bloomberg for 500 million. Yeah. You're seeing all these memes because alleged um, Democratic candidate Mike Bloomberg has tapped some of the biggest meme makers on the internet, uh, which means people who drive me insane. Yeah, uh, right. To post sponsored content on Instagram to promote his presidential campaign. He has spent $1 million a day on this endeavor the past week, which is further calling into question the morality and fairness of his campaign. Yeah.
4: I think I'm also just ready to cancel memes. I think this is peak memes, and we're done with them I now. feel
3: like we don't do memes anymore. We do, like, reaction images, funny photos, but I don't like memes, like, white. Fun. Stop. Stop. Uh, uh, <laughs> just stop. Like...
4: The lesson is he just, because of the amount of money he has, he just is reaching out to whatever. He he got like a readout of the most popular people, knows nothing about them,
0: mm-hmm.
4: get, gets them to post a meme, and then that's it. Like, he's so rich he doesn't even have to be creative about taking over the media.
0: Let's jump into the fact that the Daily Beast reported that the campaign was offering social media influencers $150 to create content in support of him. $150. This man is a billionaire who is trying to buy his way into the presidency, and you were taking $150 from him?
3: I would never. I would never do it.
0: I got $1,000 from a com- from a company to post some branded content last week, Like, and you're getting $150 from Bloomberg? Have a some speci- more self-respect. Yeah, he's spending a million
4: dollars a day on this stuff. Right. Let's think about You can picture a pie, right? <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> What's the math on it?
4: Picture that? a
0: boysenberry in the middle of the pie. <laughs> Picture a quarter of that.
4: That's what you're getting.
0: So it's extra embarrassing um, for him to be doing this. And extra embarrassing that um, Instagram is letting it happen because his spawn con on Instagram will not be subject to Facebook's um, political ad regulations. That's cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So basically he's using Instagram because it is free reign. And I think we know it would happen if that were to happen on Facebook again. We saw <laughs> exactly. the 2016 election.
3: I wonder if in- Instagram is probably what will happen. It'll be our, our Facebook fiasco again. And I- we'll be living in a Bloomberg presidency.
4: <laughs> I mean, the only good thing that's coming out of this man gaining what I'll call prominence, buying his way into prominence, is it just makes me want to vote for the people I want to vote for. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. it makes me think, like, this is exactly what Elizabeth Warren hates.
0: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she continues to be right. So there was also this moment from the Bill Maher show, ugh, the chills. <laughs> right. Um, and Katie Kirk was on it, and she was talking about this other tactic that Bloomberg had done. I talked to somebody from the Bloomberg campaign, they said they're hiring an expert on narcissism and combining that, no,
1: combine, no, this is for real, combining that person with a comedy writer to get in Donald Trump's head.
0: What?
3: What kind of witch shit is that? What does that have to do with anything? Can we not incorporate comedy
4: writers? Everybody on earth is like quasi a comedy writer right now. I don't need another one like in the mix. Did they steal them from Klobuchar's campaign? Oh, yeah. Oh, her jokes? <laughs> What's the thing she always says? Who does that? <laughs> She's the new Jerry Seinfeld. Yeah, it's just her and Jerry. Your upswing still needs to be explained to me. Is it do people like her because she's just not terribly old like the other front runners? I feel like that's what's hurting certain people in the race, right? Like they just want somebody who's fifty-five or whatever.
0: I mean, you know, I'm from Milwaukee, um, and uh, I went to a all boys Catholic high school, so I grew up with um, Republicans. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, I feel like a lot of them are like their their spouses who are like more Republican or, like, their parents, they say that they would vote for, like, an Amy Klobuchar because she's Centrism. So, oh, like, so it's just closer
4: tr- to them. The new moderate we're trying out after whomever has l- flooded the race already. Yeah. Beto, et cetera. Yeah,
0: yeah her or that gay. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, one gay. Huh? After. <laughs> did <you say> what? <laughs> <laughs> I said one gay. What? Um. Bernie Sanders. Yeah. <laughs> Noted <known at> homosexual <laughs> <Cory Booker>. running.
3: <laughs> um. Other than us, like keeping up with pop culture and having seen the memes, did you guys see them on your on your feeds?
0: I have seen them, yeah. but not the way that other people were seeing them, mostly because I don't follow meme accounts.
3: Yeah, they're blocked, actually.
0: I'm always disappointed in, like,
4: for instance, the rare times, like, a tweet of mine ends up on one of those accounts. N- now with credit, thanks to a lot of the people who fought yeah. against people like, fu- fu- yeah, Jerry. like Fuck Jerry. I'm like, why don't you just follow these people at the sort? I just, I, I don't I don't get anything out of reading material where you're supposed to say, that's me, or same. Mm-hmm. I, I don't uh-huh. understand the joy of that, because yeah. it's it's such an obvious it's such obvious comedy like oh we're all big messes oh we all <laughs> like pizza you know it's just like <laughs> what like yes I eat food and go to sleep like yeah. what what it's it's such it's so stupid to me
0: I mean one of our friends Jordan Ardita what he had a tweet that was like um next week is already exhausting yeah and then that just got it was about like. The election and about like things actually being exhausting and horrible. And then it kept being repurposed for like mommy blogger Instagram <laughs> memes. It's like, oh, yeah. yeah. next week is exhausted <laughs> at Kroger's. No, no. <laughs> I went to a hotel
4: and Jordan's tweet was posted on the wall. Without credit, by the way.
0: Yes. And even talking about how we do get credited now when those sites take one of our tweets. This was what I talked about on the show a year or so ago when um, Betches, you know, the people who run um, Hinge as well, <laughs> uh, stole that tweet of mine and then posted it. And the thing is, even when they're giving you credit, like they will tag your Instagram or like be like, get it from this at Twitter account. Those pages are getting money mm-hmm. yeah. for posting your tweet. You know, so like you may be getting credited, but like, they're getting, like, $1,000 or something. It's not
4: commensurate. You
0: know, so, like, like, what is the point of these meme accounts? And imagine following, like, a fuck cherry. Or there's Kale Salad, which is one of those meme accounts, and... Was also run by BuzzFeed employee Samir Mesrahi. Mm. Um, and I worked with Samir when I was at BuzzFeed. Um, full disclosure, he used to work at BuzzFeed. <laughs> uh, and Samir is actually the person who got me at Ira on Twitter. Oh, oh really? Yeah. Oh, that's he, power. He, Close s- with. he yes, slacked definitely. me one day and was like, Would you want your name to be Ira on Twitter? And I said, Sure. And it was done. In a day. Oh, my creepy King Midas shit. And yeah. Ira
3: Glass has never slept since that day. He
0: shook. <laughs> he shook. <laughs> Ira Gershwin's ghost rattling. <laughs> Pull up, Ira's. You know the addy. <laughs> Um But BuzzFeed allowed Samir to post sponsored content on his kale salad meme account uh, because it is part of their creators program, which permits some non-news employees to monetize their own social media channels. Facebook says that branded content is different from advertising, but in either case, we believe it's important people know when they're seeing paid content on our platforms. That's why we have an ad library where anyone can see who paid for an ad and why we require creators to disclose any paid partnerships through our branded content tools. I don't find it shocking that BuzzFeed let one of their employees post an ad for Mike Bloomberg that only paid them $150, because BuzzFeed <laughs> is cheap. Uh, <laughs> but that is just wild to me. Yeah. Also wait, are, are we
4: sure that all these people just got $150? Like if you read for BuzzFeed, you're probably offered more than that,
0: right? Probably, yes. The Daily Beast reported that some people were paid $150. Oh. Maybe, maybe Kale Salagar got, got a little more. <laughs> A little more change. Okay. Yeah. A little more green? Yeah. I don't think people are coming out with how much that they made from Bloomberg, obviously. Uh, and which is to say that we're now talking about Bloomberg and his fucking memes um, instead of, um, I don't know, um, stop and frisk right. uh, and his other racist policies when he was mayor. Didn't he also say that redlining would have prevented the 2008 recession? Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And uh, also the
3: timeliness of this meme was right after that audio clip was leaked about him talking about stop and frisk.
0: Yes, you know, it's like, oh, let's remind people that I'm funny, and it's funny that a billionaire is trying to buy their way into the presidency, almost sort of like Trump did. Um, also, the
3: memes. If did you look at the memes? Yeah, they're really
0: bad. Like they're very bad. He's
3: trying to appeal to the youth vote by being like painfully ironic and being an old man, and then a lot of it's like black culture jokes too.
0: It's yes. really strange. Well, so um, many of the memes are like him DMing the account saying, hey, can you post this meme? And they're like, this meme is dumb. You're old. And like that's the point of the joke. Yeah. It's like we're gonna see Bloomberg on TikTok doing the renegade next week. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> Which by the way, that has no political <laughs> that has no political
4: content in it. No it's, it's like the most sarcastic, uh pointless exhibitionism of his candidacy. Right?
0: It's banal and it's also just emblematic of what is so gross about, you know, sort of advertising in politics right now, too. It's like, I'm trying to appeal to younger voters by doing these memes that have no actual content in them, you know? And it's like you have actual candidates out here uh, trying to talk about policies and actually try to connect with younger voters. I mean, you can talk about the way, like, the Sanders campaign connects with younger voters, and this is just, it's, it's nonsense,
3: and yeah, the amount of like exorbitant money spending is not appealing to me. I like Elizabeth Warren, whose campaign is funded on lint and hopes. You know? <laughs> that's what I appeal to.
0: And and the energy of four a.m. grinder tech, <laughs>
3: yeah,
0: yeah. um blowing up my if phone, asking for another more. donation. I'm Pretty like, much... I've given you enough, <laughs> but I will give you more. <laughs> now that Bloomberg is posting memes. Yeah. One fifty. No more, no less. I
4: I think what's uncomfortable is realizing that Mike Bloomberg is somebody you as a Democratic voter now have to be almost vocally uh, against. Like, you you know, we're still in the stage where we're supposed to be obsessed with a candidate or picking who we're voting for in the primaries. But it's like now there's this person who you specifically have to speak up about because they've made themselves Loud enough that they feel almost like a normal competitive candidate when, in fact, they run against everything the Democratic Party allegedly stands for.
0: Right. And, you know, it feels a lot like the Republicans might have been feeling in 2016, right? You know, with, like, Trump running and people not really taking him seriously until all of a sudden he became a very big problem. And I also want to dispel the notion, too, that like I'm comparing Bloomberg to Trump. I think there are two different kinds of evils. One, Bloomberg actually has money. Uh, (laughs) Trump does not. uh, And his family's not as gross. But I will also say that We obviously, like, make jokes about a lot of the candidates and, like, we support who we support. But, like, at the end of the day, we're also talking about supporting the Democratic Party in taking on Trump and um, conservatism in this country that is very detrimental to a lot of people. And Bloomberg is not that, you know? We're not talking about the fact that he – changed uh, term limits for mayor in New York so that he could have a third term and then changed them back after (laughs) he was a mayor a third time. You know, it's like this is the kind of man who is bought his way into a mayorship and is now trying to buy his way into a presidency and I feel like we should be talking about his issues. We should be vetting him the way that we horrifically vetted, you know, people like Kamala Harris um, and had them dropping out of the race. And now it's like, I bet a lot of people are pissed they dropped out of the race now that Bloomberg's in it. <laughs> and we're changing convention rules so that he could be like a debate th- too. Like It seems exhausting
4: to have to read up on, be informed about somebody who is ostensibly wasting our time. But he
0: has made himself present in a way where now you have to. Wasting his time, but also spending so much money that, as I mentioned last week, you know, like I have family members messaging me like, oh, should I be voting for Bloomberg? He seems like the only person who can beat Trump. And he probably seems like the only person who can beat Trump to them because he's the only person spending billions of dollars to be on their TV all the fucking time. And he's, he's taking up all the oxygen and they don't know what the other candidates can do.
3: Also, it gets into the conversation for me of, I know it's new waters for us to navigate, but this happened in 2016 with Facebook. Why are we not doing something preemptive and proactive about Instagram and Instagram ads and these different loopholes and maneuvers that these candidates can use? Why are we talking about it after the fact? And I know that that's going to probably happen in the future, too.
0: Right, because nobody's using Facebook right now. At, at least, all. I mean, I'm sure older relatives are using Facebook, and I will sometimes get a friend request from someone on Facebook. Uh, I'll be like, why you're alive? <laughs> you you you're, were friends on Instagram or like Twitter. Mm-hmm. You or you know me in LA. Why are you adding me on Facebook? Can
4: I tell you something? I did a uh, a bit for work recently where I had to go ask people what their last Facebook status was, and I was I had forgotten that no th- no one had one. They're like, oh, I kind of occasionally will repost, like or like if I go on vacation, maybe I post pictures, or whatever. But really, nobody in our demographic. Uses it regularly anymore. I was I was alarmed to find
0: it was like zero percent. Ira is watching McMillions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I miss that. I do miss the blank is doing this. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I also miss. Well,
4: the number one thing I miss about Facebook is when you had your favorite books, movies, whatever listed, and always in college under favorite books, the, the you'd look up your crush and he his, his it would fill in with. Don't read.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I forgot about that.
0: Like how proud they were. Or it'd be like, Slaughterhouse five Or oh, nineteen eighty four yeah. and that's yeah. it. Right. Yeah.
3: Those two books and the, that's
0: it. It's like we get it. Orwell and Vonnegut.
3: The Great American novels. You cool. went to school.
4: I specifically had a crush in, in college who I went to his Facebook because that was where there there were no Twitters or whatever then. You yeah. you didn't get constant updates on people. You had to look at their Facebook interest to see what was happening with them or their wall or whatever. And his favorite book was R. L. Stein's The Goosebumps. <laughs> Wow.
0: (laughs) I do love the goosebumps and such. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Tales of the goosebumps.
3: You guys haven't talked about the Goosebumps since I got here. And you used to talk about it a lot.
0: Oh, you're right. Yeah, yeah. A, lot, you, a lot, a lot. been listening to all the episodes?
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah.
0: <laughs> Doing her research?
3: Keeping it.
0: What do you want me to say about Goosebumps? I don't
3: know. Talk about it more.
4: My hairiest <laughs> adventure still slays.
0: <laughs> yeah. It
4: came from beneath the sink. Bullshit.
0: I I uh I met this boy at a party on Friday. Well, it turns out I'd already met him before. um, And I just kept forgetting his name. In what kind of capacity? Uh, but oh. he was wearing a Curse of the Mummy's Tomb shirt. That's Goosebumps number five. Oh, and do we like him for it? Yeah. Be careful what you wish for. That was a good one. Ooh, I think that was number 12. Yeah, something, yeah. 12, yeah. Mm -hmm. That one had the um, crystal ball on it and like the girl (laughs) looking scared on it. Uh, I could sometimes pull back numbers of Goosebumps books, mostly because I read them... um, when in I sequence, was a kid. as the like, author intended. Well like yes, yeah. so I read them in sequence, but also like <laughs> my school, grade school was like obsessed with the Goosebumps books. So when they came out, I used to go right after school. To get the new one, and then I would would read it that night. But then I would still bring it to school with me, so people could see that I had the new one.
3: Bitch had to flex. Yeah, (laughs) you had to flex.
0: Flexing on you with piano lessons can be murder. (laughs) (laughs) I I remember at my house. This is very important to the Bloomberg
4: conversation. I know, but uh, uh, we had a copy of Let's Get Invisible. Yeah, and I remember number six. Yes, and.
3: Please tell me it's not based off like Olivia Newton-John song.
4: No. <laughs> Let's get physical, yes. Um, Let's get invisible. Visible. <laughs> visible. Wow, is that supposed to be a pun on that? No. Okay, better not. Be. Maybe.
3: No, it has to be. That doesn't make any sense. Let's get invisible.
4: Yeah, it sounds really hokey. I wanna see your
0: body gone.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Works out. But I was very young then and I was kind of afraid of the cover. I remember mm-hmm. Goosebumps books, you would be I would just. I couldn't be in the, the room. The covers
0: with... were creepy. Yeah. And that was actually one of the scarier books. Yeah, right, right, right. Then they then they got silly. Like, nobody is afraid of vampires' breath. <laughs> no, right, right. That's when the the covers got even hokier. They were, yeah. like,
4: cartoonish looking. Where it came
0: from beneath the sink. That's
4: Right. Yeah. The Scarecrow Walks at Midnight, I enjoyed that one. Yeah.
3: These still sound like Olivia Newton-John songs. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: don't know. <laughs> that would be from her Nashville days. Yeah. Yes, it's from the album Twist of Fate. <laughs> anyway. uh um, Bloomberg. <laughs> Bloomberg,
3: don't
4: vote for him. Yeah. No. Please. Can we please be done with this? Jesus, it hurts. Lock,
3: and block fuck Jerry and Kale Salad and
4: yes. Yeah. Oh, by the way, fuck Jerry can never make enough amends. Please be done
0: Mm-mm. with that. Yeah. From it and isn't it the fat Jewish too? Yeah. Still yeah, posting yeah. things. Oh, can't wait till his Kennedy center honors. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when we're back, a conversation with Heather Graham. Ah! Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. Lewis? Yes? When you see Footprints in the Sand, that was when I carried you in my Barefoot Dreams rub. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? (laughs) No? Uh, If you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. Really exciting to have you here, Heather. Thanks for having me. I feel like we've all sort of admired you for years. (laughs) Yes. Uh, (laughs) Truly. I mean... No, uh, because I I
4: was going through your filmography, and I, of course, I have a pretty... um, acute memory when it comes to movies and then other things came up I was like right six degrees of separation like mm-hmm. Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle these are movies like I was obsessed with growing up that wow. like frankly make you gay yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. so congrats on being woven into my DNA mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: Wait, do you have a boyfriend? I want to set you up with my friend. Oh, God, I, I don't. No. I love this interview
0: already. Yep. You <laughs> stay. Yes. Uh, no, thinking about that, I okay. mean, I feel like from high school, I was weirdly obsessed with, like, bookie nights, you know? And that was one of your first major appearances. Mm-hmm. And um, that's sort of what got me in the PTA, I feel sure. like, too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it took me a minute to get back into him because right. I, I love those kind of movies from him um, the seedier yes. sort of part um, what what's that been like you know having that as your sort of introduction to Hollywood really as like your legacy
2: I mean I feel so lucky that I got to work with such a talented filmmaker and it was really special all those people sort of in a pretty beginning moment with their of their careers you know mm-hmm. Philip Seymour Hoffman um, it was it was really special. I feel so lucky.
0: Mm-hmm. And it was weird because when we were looking up uh, stuff to talk to you about, uh, I saw that you had to turn down Heather's. Because yeah. I had a very religious like family yeah. I was actually
2: living at home I was I think 17 and they're like if you do this movie we're kicking you out <laughs> <laughs> wow. how old were you <laughs> license to drive? 17 wow. it was around the same okay. time yeah mm-hmm. the same year or whatever and then I graduated then I did Drugstore Cowboy after I moved out because yeah. my parents read the script and they were like no you're mm. not. They were, my dad is very Catholic mm-hmm. um, so yeah I know that's sad I look back and go I wish I was in that but what can you do?
0: Yeah, I mean...
2: I mean, I guess I could have moved out. That was really a great thing about <laughs> having money when you were set, like, because I did License to Drive and I got some money. It's pretty mm-hmm. amazing to be 17 years old and make, like, a chunk of change. Yeah. Yeah.
4: <laughs> yeah. 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 Also, like, I feel like the variety of films you've been in has been pr- pretty staggering. We Before you, uh, before we started recording, we brought up Bowfinger. What, can you describe what the most fulfilling type of movie-making experience is? Like, you being on a set, what's, like, the most ideal way to spend your time making a movie
2: well I mean I think it all starts with a script if you have a great script and you feel really inspired um, I think too what it's about also matters and um the people that you're working with, the director, the other actors. I think sometimes you just get a sense you're doing something special and you know to be honest, it's fun to be working as an actor. I mean, I'm just so grateful that I get to work as an actor, make money. Like I recently started directing and writing and it's just I just feel so lucky to be in this business and producing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I started producing too. Um
3: it's 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 lucky to do what we do. It's it's not a sucky job, you know, yeah. <laughs> that transition into your directorial debut with Half Magic, you know, how was having the experience of being an actress and being mm-hmm. on set and knowing what mm-hmm. you don't like from directors? Mm-hmm. How did that affect how you directed your movie?
2: Well, um, to be honest, the, the main thing that motivated me was just the fact that I think most movies are from a male point of view. And I just thought, you know, I want to see more movies from a female point of view. So I could sit here complaining about it or I could just do something about it, mm-hmm. which um, it's, it's exciting to see more female directors. Um, but I do feel like our culture just skews so heavily towards sort of like a white male perspective. And I think that it's good to show other people's points of view.
4: Also, well, in putting this movie together, you incorporated a lot of experiences from your life that are what I would, I would guess, are like debilitatingly sexist yeah. or horrible <laughs> dating experiences. Yeah. No, in in committing those to the page, I always have this question about incorporating real life experiences into movies. There's something about when you write it into a movie like the, the, your lived in personal experience feels. I don't know, like when you when you watch a movie, every, everything is elevated, everything is heightened. So I feel like. Certain horrible experiences made us come off as a normal movie when you write them down. Was it like very tough to put these things on the page? Was it like vulnerable making for you?
2: I mean, I think it is tough, but it also feels cathartic. And I just wanted to, um, I wish I knew when I was younger what I know now, you know, as a woman in the culture. Like I didn't really find my own voice until I got older. And I realized that I could say the things I was thinking. I just thought I had to kind of people please men, really. Yeah. And, you know, get them to hire me. And I hope they think I'm pretty. And I hope they think I'm sexy. I didn't realize I could just be like, this is me. I can say what I think, Um, I really only realize that in the past, you know, recent time. Is that true? Well, I think I gradually, slowly became more and more like that. But just to realize that I can just be myself. I think I, you know, I think as a woman in the culture, I think I grew up a little bit people-pleasy. And you just kind of feel like you're supposed to take care of everyone else all the time. And so to kind of break out of that and just go, no, I can just be myself, take care of myself first. Of course, I want to be a good person to the people around me. But just that I can be exactly who I am and say what I think.
0: Well, thinking of that, I mean, we had brought up, you know, like, even Boogie Nights or, like, The Spy Who Shagged Me, you know? Like, do you look back then on films like those with um, still a memorable sort of Of experience? Of course. No,
2: I feel, like, so lucky. I mean, to come from suburban... la and have nobody in the entertainment business and to be able to work in movies with my heroes it's just it's a huge it's so exciting and i feel so lucky um it's more of like a broad scope even as an audience member not necessarily that i think anything bad about the men i work with i think they're amazing and i love them and i think they're so talented it's just like as an audience member going to movies and feeling like so many movies are so formulaic and so male like it's just frustrating sometimes as a woman
0: What's sort of been inspiring you in film lately? Then,
2: Um, well, I liked um, that movie, The Farewell. Oh, Oh,
0: fabulous! Yeah, Yeah, Lulu Wang is fantastic. Yeah, I wanted
2: her to get some awards or something. Yeah, Yeah. she got the spirit. (laughs) I know she did. Okay, that's good. That's good. We were just talking the elevator. I love Pen Fifteen. It's not a movie, but Mm -hmm. it's these two, you know, comedians, and they're pretending like they're in. Middle school. But I love just this female perspective on this awkward years of growing up.
4: There's something height. about pen fifteen too where it, it almost makes me mad that we haven't had that show before. Just like, why aren't we like, d- don't have plenty of shows where we're playing our former selves yeah. and how ridiculous yeah. we were. It yeah. just, it's so novel and so right. overdue in a way.
2: Right. Well, it's like there's the scenes of her where she's learning how to masturbate and I just think, you know, you're not used to seeing women go through that. You're used to seeing men and like, whatever, their different experiences where their sexuality but her like, in her room, trying to figure out how to masturbate. There's a scene where she's licking the poster. Oh (laughs) my God. (laughs) It's
3: such (laughs) such a clever maneuver to use them as adults because you can't show 13-year-olds doing that. So it's it's, it's smart. I love that show a lot. I also
4: just think in general... nostalgia in movies, like movies about like your child or whatever, mm. those specifically skew super male. Yeah, I was just yeah, watching yeah. on the plane on the way here, American Graffiti, which, mm-hmm. which they're like the wonder years. There are so many things that like, stand by me. Like there's a whole culture of like, yeah. can you believe how much fun it was when we were 15 and wearing our jeans and but we had our secret men. handshakes. Yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. like, it's, yeah. like what
0: you, it's like what you're nostalgic for is boys hanging around boys. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking of like a pen 15, do you yeah. miss the sitcom world?
2: Um, I mean, there's certain sitcoms I love that like friends, right mm-hmm. I mean yeah. I'm, when I'm on a plane, I'll watch it, It just makes me so happy, yeah. and, but I actually prefer single camera okay. comedies, like I prefer like sex in the city
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you were on you were on. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah I was on and yeah, I, I was obsessed with that show. I thought that show was very important for women too, because it was all about like feel good about yourself, mm-hmm. you don't just need to get married and have kids, but you can be this fabulous. Mm-hmm kind of single person just having a fun life
0: yeah I mean and you had a show briefly too I did yeah yeah mm-hmm. I mean do, do you uh did you have a fun time doing Emily
2: it was fun I mean now that I've got more into writing I think I, I, I am working on pitching a show of something that I wrote and mm-hmm. um so that sounds really fun I think it's so exciting now some of the shows that are out there and how creative people are getting in TV
0: can you tell us a bit how you um came to the rest of us like how did you link up with the director
2: Um, they sent me the script and, um, offered me the role and it was a really excellent script and, um, it's great. We went to Toronto with the film. We were in the Toronto Film Festival and it was exciting to work with a lot of women. Such as? Um, well, the director, Ashling Chin-Yi, um, the two producers who form Babe Nation, um, Katie Bird-Nolan, Lin- Lindsay Tapscott, um, and Jodie Balfour is the other actress, Abigail Panowski and Sophie Nelise. And they're all so good. I showed up on set one day and I just, on the first day, and I thought, these other actresses are bringing it. Like, I better bring it, too. Like, I- I'm really impressed by them.
3: Yeah. Do you find it difficult when you're, I mean, this goes back again to being in Half Magic and now this movie, The Rest of Us. Is it difficult for you to be in stories that are about women empowerment? Like, I'm sure that hits home for you. How is the acting different than when you're in, like, a comedy or a drama has nothing to do with that.
2: Well, I guess you care more about it because you're like, I want these stories to uh, start making money, you know, so people (laughs) make more. Um, But yeah, this is movies a little bit darker. It's a little bit it has humor, but it's a little bit more dramatic. I think Half Magic was more hopefully like Mm -hmm. feel good. Um, But yeah, it feels really good as a woman when you're working with other women and, you know, telling a story that you think you hope is somewhat empowering to women.
4: Were there other women just in your career that you ran into, whether they were actresses or screenwriters, producers, who sort of planted the seed in you, like, oh, yeah, I can do this.
2: Well, I was always inspired by Drew Barrymore when she was producing her own stuff. Selma Hayek when she did Frida. Um, of course, Reese Witherspoon is amazing. I've tried to option some of those books that she's already optioned, but she has amazing taste in books. Mm-hmm.
0: I feel like she just wanders Barnes and Noble just grabbing. I <laughs> <every> mean, <book. laughs> I tried to
2: option Wild. I tried to option Gone Girl. I tried to option Where the Crawdads Sing. It was like, Reese already got there. <laughs> but, so I joined her book club now. I tried to option Erotic Stories for Punjabi Widows, but that was Ridley Scott's company. And he got that, mm-hmm. but um, but yeah, it's ins- it's great to see them. I also get inspired by Frankie Shaw, how she wrote and directed her own show. Issa Rae, I thought she's a badass. Um, people like that, mm-hmm. and the Pen Fifteen girls. I feel like they created their own show. That's pretty amazing.
0: Even just sort of like explain to our listeners, too, when you talk about, like, you find a story, like a book that you were, like, like optioning it. Like, what's even the process of that?
2: Well, it's pretty scary, because mm-hmm. you're going, well, is this person gonna, when I option the hypnotist Love Story, I'm like, will Leanne Moriarty take me seriously? Will she let me option her book? And she did. And then you really feel, behold, like, you're just, I really want to do well for this person, because she gave me this shot. And it's hard, because people are like, well, you know, what else have you done? And and if you're not as experienced as a producer, you have to prove yourself.
4: Right. Yeah. So how do you convince those people?
2: Well, luckily, um, some people you can't convince. There's some books I've tried to option you. I haven't been able to convince them. But um, with her, she gave me a shot. And she's really, you know, we have it for another year. So knock on wood, it looks like hopefully we can get it to happen. Um but you really want to do her right. Because I've read every book and I just love Leanne Moriarty so much. I just feel like I know her even though I don't. And I just want to do <laughs> right by Leanne, you know?
0: <laughs> I mean, that's sort of the uh, beauty of what we don't do, right? I mean, right. I feel like we welcomed you in here, but we also yeah. felt like we knew you. Yeah, 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 yeah. When you see
2: someone's work. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: totally. What kind of roles do you find yourself being offered still do you feel like people when they're like i want heather graham in this movie i'm thinking of her like are they still thinking of you as the actress from like an austin powers or are they being like i want to offer her something different
2: well i think one of the great things about the rest of us the movie that i'm in that's coming out right now is because it's a character that's not my typical thing and Mm -hmm. it's more soulful i think um, my intelligence, I feel like I get to really play just a real woman who's really intelligent. And, um, I mean, that's one reason why I kind of got into the driver's seat of, you know, writing, directing. I just optioned this book by Leanne Moriarty and we're hopefully making that into a TV pilot. So
0: mm-hmm. I think a lot
2: of actresses are doing that because- Is
0: she Big Little Lies? Yeah. Well, then, yes. yeah, right. yes, yes. she's got a she's slew amazing. of
2: books. <laughs> I know every book is optioned by some- great actress because, the, yeah. you know, there's not always as much great material for us. We have to make it for ourselves sometimes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. yeah. What was the first thing in L.A. that made you feel like, oh, this is something I sort of want to learn more about?
2: I went to this female empowerment class because I was thinking, well, this could be a cool movie. I might option this woman's book. And... Um, and it just was really inspiring to see women just feeling good about themselves. And I, I I formed this group of friends from that class, and we used to get together and wish for things. So we would go to this store in New York, and um, oh, what's the name of it? Um, but there's this witchcraft store in New York, and you buy candles and you make wishes. Mm-hmm. And so we would all do that. And, and a lot of amazing things started happening in our lives that we were wishing for. And as each of us would wish for something, we would all wish for that thing for that person and, and, and visualize it. And, you know, your intentions are really powerful I still do it sometimes it's very fun
1: mm-hmm
2: It's kind of like affirmations. I don't know if you guys ever... Yeah. Yeah, like I am... Like I have this one like I write and direct and star in movies that empower women, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's just... Or, you know, you do anything that you want. Like I'm making tons of money, stuff like that. And I read them
3: every morning. (laughs) With a lot of money. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm doing what I love and making a lot of money. (laughs) You call me loony, but I'm on her side. (laughs) Because there's the the affirmations that you say that kind of like actualize things in yourself. And then there's the ones that you like put all your consciousness together and I really feel like it can affect the outer world. Yeah. Maybe I'm attention. wild.
2: Because sometimes you have this negative mindset you don't realize you have mm-hmm. and you're sort of rewriting it and a lot of my friends have started doing it and they said, you know, this is crazy, but this is working. Yeah, <laughs> My anything, girlfriend last night just called me and she said, I thought this was crazy when you told me to do it, but now half of the things are coming true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, if
0: anything, I feel like, especially just working in Los Angeles and, you know, how negative so many things can be, it's very helpful to, be focused on something that's positive. And and it's affirming. so easy to beat
2: up on yourself. Like mm-hmm. I think you know, and even re- growing up religious, it sort of feels like you're supposed to beat up on yourself. You know, I think to kind of go against that programming and go, "I'm going to be really nice to myself." Yeah, it's hard. Do huh?
4: you have any wishes you're waiting on right now?
2: Oh yeah. <laughs> oh
1: yeah. Can't <laughs> yeah, speak them here. <laughs> oh no, a lot. No, yeah.
2: I, well, I want to get the TV show that I'm writing to happen. I I'm writing actually two different TV shows. Um, I want to direct again. Um.
4: Yeah. By the way, correct me if I'm wrong, is it not crazy to suddenly jump into writing? Like did you feel comfortable just putting kind of pen crazy. to page? of crazy. actually yeah. I
2: have I have some new friends that are writers and I just did a read through of this thing that I wrote and your mm-hmm. kind of mind is being blown sometimes mm-hmm. when you see something that you wrote. I'm sure happen and you're rece- watching people read it. It's really mind-blowing.
3: Did you have to learn the process of screenwriting, like, in the middle of your acting career? Did, were you already yes. picking up on things I mean, I'm still were...
2: learning it. I feel like I read a lot of books. There's a lot of great screenwriting books. Mm-hmm. And I give it to my friends who are writers, and they give me notes. And, you know, it's always a process of learning. But now when I watch things, you know, because you always set up, build, you know, mm-hmm. develop, whatever. So you can see, okay, they left a seat of this. So something's going to happen in the second act. and the third act, yeah. they're going to pay it off. So you start to understand when you're watching things, you kind of know what's going to happen more. Because mm-hmm. you understand the formula. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, I feel like that's how I picked it up. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I only have the Is patience it? to write jokes, so uh. when people can actually write screenplays, I'm blown away. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, Heather, we want to thank you for being Thanks here. Thanks for being
2: here. Yes, watch the so rest much. of us. Yeah,
0: <laughs> we're gonna make keep it listeners go. It's on iTunes. Watch yeah, the rest some, of it's us. It's in
2: some theaters in ten cities, but if you want to watch it at home and just be cozy, watch it on iTunes
0: cozy speaks to me I have to tell you me
2: too I mean I'm in the movie business but I love watching movies at home
0: you're part of the problem (laughs) problem. (laughs) Heather. thank you for being here with us Heather Um, the rest of us premiered February 14th and so you can see it in select theaters and also watch it on iTunes at home I was very saddened by the news that uh, former Love Island host Caroline Flack had tragically died over the weekend, uh, and a lot of it was attributed to the sort of pile-on mentality of social media and the press. For those of you who don't know, uh, Caroline was not the host of the currently airing season of. Love Island, the South Africa winter season, which is quite boring, uh, if I can say, um, Though I've been told Casa Amor is much better this season. Weeks after um, a self-admitted dark period in her life where she assaulted her boyfriend and was arrested, um, she did not come back for this season. Um, But the news of the assault, after not just leading to her dismissal from Love Island, it also led to an onslaught of negative media coverage. Which, as we know, in the UK is um, how they say hello. (laughs) Standard practice. We've heard of you. Shall we ruin your life? Yes. Um, So they recently chased Harry and Meghan out of the country. Mm. And now we have um, Caroline, who is a confirmed death by suicide. And what's sort of really um, making a lot of this even weirder is just that this is the third um, death by suicide from someone involved in Love Island. Really? Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, two former contestants, Sophie Graydon and Mike um, both took their own lives um, after appearing on the show. It's extremely morbid. Yes. Um, and Sophie's boyfriend um, took his own life after she died. Caroline Flack is uh,
4: what they would call in the UK a presenter. Hosting yeah. is much more of a serious profession there. Mm-hmm. So this is somebody you'd see all the time. Is
3: her on the X Factor? Mm-hmm. She Correct. X Factor, yeah. Yeah.
4: And I think she was also on I'm a Celebrity Get Me Out of Here. So yes. she's just like a mainstay of uh, UK TV. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and it's bringing into question this idea of the British press, obviously, and how we attack people, how social media attacks people, and uh, Also, just this show, like, should it be canceled? Uh, A lot of people are calling for it to be canceled, and it sort of reminded me of when we were having that conversation in the U.S., you know, with shows like Unreal, right? Um, There's that storyline about um, one of the contestants dying, and I think it was talking a lot just about the machinations of reality TV and how they can be a toll on people's mental health.
3: I think about like shows like The Bachelorette that haven't had that are so they're so sensational like these shows are so um easily easily obsessed over because they are very vain and superficial but fun like I will I will admit I love Love Island and I love watching it mm-hmm. but then what kind of culture does that foster not just for us but for the people who are on that show and Caroline having lost that job after the assault and it being such a large show I can't imagine the brunt of that emotionally
0: mm-hmm. you know And what you also have to remember too is that as Lewis said, like reality TV in the UK is much different than it is here because you will see like a Bachelor contestant and um, maybe you'll see like someone from Big Brother or Survivor um, on social media or something and maybe they'll appear in other things. But we're sort of past that big era of where like you became a megastar for being on reality TV in mm-hmm. the US. Uh, unless you're like a real housewife or something. Yeah, right?
4: Kardashian or whatever. But yeah.
0: in the UK, like, they are celebrities and, like, the press covers them and hounds them um, like they are Julia Roberts.
3: (laughs) Does that speak to, like, I mean, I know they have their own celebrities, but does that speak to them taking in more American culture, do you
0: think? Or is that just... No, I think that their culture is just much more concentrated, you know, and it's like they're reporting on the stuff from their own country. What's interesting is that there's been a... Commentary also from Jamila Jamil, who we have not talked about in the wake of her um, legendary um, mess, the fiasco (laughs) that happened the other week. But I guess we can get into that now. Um, Jamila herself is subject to negative online conspiracy theories herself. Um, I think we know... um, Former Gawker writer Tracy Egan-Morrissey um, has sort of been leading a campaign accusing Jamila of Munchausen's um, <laughs> which by proxy. A, which, uh, no, just
4: Munchausen's, oh, just right? Munchausen. Yeah. Munchausen by proxy is the thing Patricia Clarkson has in yes. uh, uh, Sharp Object.
3: The by proxy, how does it qualify? Munchausen's. You, you keep treating somebody else as if they're yeah. second. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, I love that
4: Tracy Morrissey lined up all these interview quotes of Jamila Jamil talking about various illnesses, she's had various injuries she's endured, and when you put them all together, they seem it's a lot. highly sensational.
3: There's that she was deaf until she was 12, and that she's been in multiple car accidents, she's had multiple cancer scares, they've found lumps in her breasts. There's a lot of things that have happened to Jamila. I see where the critique is fair, but I also, unless there's real proof, I don't think it's fair that anyone is looking into her, you know history like that, her health
0: history. And what's odd about this, too, is that it does fit into the Caroline Flack situation because, I mean, Jamila herself started as a presenter in the UK, um, and now she came over to the U.S. and found fame with The Good Plays. It was her first acting role. Um, Tracy is writing these things on social media and not actually in an article, right? Like, they're Instagram stories and, and tweets, and it's inviting social media to sort of flock and attack Jamila in a way and it's it's very hard to take in and you have to have nuance in this whole conversation because there are very valid reasons to critique Jamila. Um, we didn't really talk about it on the show but you know she had signed up for that HBO Max ballroom show Legendary. Um, it was supposed to be like a judge and an MC, is what she was reported as and a lot of queer people of color took offense to that. Um, And it wasn't because she wasn't queer. It was mostly because she had no involvement in ballroom culture. Yeah. Well, there's
4: also something specific about ballroom culture, and this goes back to, for instance, the movie Paris is Burning or Madonna's Vogue, where that uh, practice, that uh, dance, whatever, has specifically been used by... Taken by uh, uh, white content creators and given to the rest of the world when it was really, you know, a hyper-specific uh, uh, POC uh, uh, expression for so long. So now, to even to add more chapters to that, feels like you're dredging up. You know, these old ghosts basically.
0: Right. And specifically, when you have a show like Pose on FX, you know, like having actual people from the community involved, having actual people from the community writing for it to see Jamila announced as being involved in the show. And I think, you know, like Megan Thee Stallion is also like supposed to be Mm -hmm. a um, judge on the show. It just seems sort of like commodifying a culture to present it to the masses without involvement from anyone who's actually involved in Ballroom. And so she had very valid critiques um, for her involvement Uh, and unfortunately she felt the need to come out as queer um, after this but then she accused the people who were critiquing her of forcing her to come out right Mm -hmm. because she was saying that they said I wasn't queer enough to be involved in the show well surprise I actually am queer Um, (laughs) which wasn't the critique by Mm -hmm. the way so it was appropriate to critique her for being involved in legendary and then unfortunately she weaponized coming out to make it seem as if she was bullied by queer people of color from the ballroom scene who were like girl what are you doing during the show
3: yeah it just shows the lack of like foundational knowledge of what we're trying to talk about with her it's not we're not accusing you of Even queer baiting or coming out as queer, your timing was horrible. But on top of that, it shows the lapse in your understanding that we are talking about this is a culture that you have nothing to do with. It's not inherently queer. It's inherently their culture, Mm -hmm. you know?
0: Right. And then, unfortunately, that happens to be timed up with the Tracy Morrissey thing now. So there's that Mm -hmm. question of how can you appropriately critique Jamila without participating in social media pile-on to lead to a Caroline Flack situation. Yeah. Which is what Jamila has brought up, you know, comparing the attacks on herself um, to the attacks on Caroline. I think, uh, regarding the
4: Jamila Jamil controversy, I think something that is strange to me is, and, and I know sh- she has uh, 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 responded in a somewhat resp- in a, in a responsible way, and I don't mean to say there's a correct way to respond to being called a liar, I guess, <laughs> but... <laughs> One thing she does is say I, that she is being gaslit, which I can't stand because I guess gaslit just means any old thing now. Yeah. Ga- gaslighting, to reiterate to people who probably don't need to hear it, is I slap Ira in the face and then I say I didn't slap you in the face again and again until I make him feel like he is crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Us questioning really strange, outlandish sounding quotes from Jamila Jamil is not gaslighting. No. You know, and I think it's valid because to me, I read these quotes and Munchausen seems like not a strange, an interesting accusation. What it sounds to me like is compulsive lying. Mm -hmm. Like like you're asked about something and you embellish the story just because you can't control yourself. That's just what it sounds like to me. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it is. So for her to then respond and say, I... Uh, women are taken seriously, whatever it 's like no, but we 're taking your quotes, and also like there are strange um, uh, there are strange corroborations occurring, like Mark Ronson talking about how a situation in which she said she was attacked by a bunch of bees she he then, in a separate interview, not knowing what she had said, said they were around two bees. So it sounds like exaggeration. Mm-hmm. I think questioning that is valid, yeah, and I don't, and i'm I'm not saying there aren't people on Twitter hounding her and saying horrible things, and like, you know, she's a woman of color. I'm sure
0: it's as horrible as it can be, right. but I think there is reason to question it, right, and unfortunately, this is a situation where um these attacks wouldn't be happening on Jamila if people didn't already sort of have a problem with her, right? You know, it's like people who are being really hurtful are people who already were sort of mad at her, right? You sort of see that when someone gets, I don't know, like dragged on social media or Twitter, right? It's like they were dragged because people were already sort of feeling like they wanted to uh, find an excuse to attack that person. Which is which
4: is sort of like I think a lot of people would say that about, for instance, Taylor Swift. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
3: I mean, because it was utterly silent on the Meg Thee Stallion front. Nobody cared that she was potentially going to judge that show. I didn't see as much flack about
0: it as, you know, yeah, for Jamila. She also didn't post about it.
3: <laughs> That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> Just like Jeezy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um yes, which is to say that um I think, obviously, the Munchausen conversation is very weird and, um, you know, the sort of uh, shaming of people with um, invisible um, disabilities and um, maybe chronic illness uh, is not the way to go to critique Jamila. I think that if you want to critique her, you can critique the way that she sort of um, inhabits the activist space and sort of, like, takes up the oxygen from other activists and, you know, the way that she... um, really sort of weaponized her coming out to um, play a victim and saying that uh, sort of the queer uh, people of color and people involved in Ballroom who had a right to critique her being involved in Legendary were sort of forcing her to come out when that wasn't the actual conversation. Um, The way that she sort of clapped back at, Um, Trace Lissette on um, Twitter when they were talking about Legendary. Um, Those are valid things to critique her about. Um, And I think that we need to get away from this whole like Munchausen um, conspiracy theory on Instagram. That said,
4: I do think it's strange that Jamila Jamil's response doesn't contain anything along the lines of... Looking back at all these quotes I've given, it does sound like I'm making a bunch of shit up. That's just how it sounds. Again, it's probably, according to her, those, all those things are true. So I'm just saying, like, to reiterate, guys, I know it sounds crazy, but it's fucking true. Yeah. I don't, I don't see the harm in that, I guess. Mm-hmm.
3: I think it's fair. I think you're right, though, that we should be corroborating what she says. I totally agree with that. I think the thing that I critique about Jamila is I usually agree with what she wants and her end goal, but hate the method. The methodology is always extremely violent, and she's going out of her way to, you know, cast a lot of disdain on people who I agree with, but it's just the way she does it. Mm -hmm. So this coming to the fact that she's launching an inquiry into British media and British press, that I I, can—I'm for that. We all have to be.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's also moments when like she's on the view and like talks about cancel culture and how like um it's rampant and out of control and the way she often does that in a way of the people who call cancel culture um everything cancel culture when it isn't. Uh and it's and it's just a lot of always using language that isn't necessary for what she's actually talking about. There are
4: no two words I hate more than cancel culture. <laughs> We've talked about this before, but it's again consequences culture. I mean, I just think there's a way to engage with most criticism, and I know the line between criticism and straight up hatefulness on Twitter is often blurred. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that said, uh, I, I, I just it, it feels like you're invoking the name of some random white man who just can't under, who can't understand why people don't like Louis C. K. His favorite still,
0: right? And you know, um, calling the Caroline Flack situation cancel culture is very dumb because it's not cancel culture. It's the culture of a um, toxic, misogynistic British press um, that would have driven her to this, you know? And you have people like, what, Piers Morgan posting, like, oh, I feel so sorry about this. And it's like, didn't you just say, like, a bunch of vile things about Meghan Markle? Like, now you care about people's well-being? Like, that's what we should be talking about. And when something happens, like Kevin Hart not getting... um to host the Oscars, and people wanna call that cancel culture, which is out of control. As we've said before, that's not canceling. That is a consequence. A consequence which he also could've just apologized for, and we wouldn't have had to have an entire, you know, winter of talking about Kevin Hart. I said that cancel culture were my least two favorite words, and then you said Piers Morgan.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And then you said Kevin Hart.
4: (laughs) Piers Morgan tweeting upside down from the garbage can in which he lives. Y'all remember that mean girl scene? Based on him.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Upside
0: down. (laughs) Anyway, when we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Lewis. You seem like you are antsy. I am smiling. You're, I don't know why you're smiling, bitch. Well, let <laughs> me tell you something.
4: Um, you all know I'm obsessed with trivia. And uh, so it's no it will come as no surprise to you that I love being right. <laughs> um, Billie Eilish is no time to die, the theme for the next Bond movie has come out. A few weeks ago, I said, I don't know if this is the right choice. Love Billie Eilish, love her brother. I called them the A.S.M. Arpenters. Very (laughs) clever joke of mine. The new song has come out. Guys, it is their sleepiest song yet. We are now eight years into Bond themes, seeming like orchestral Zoloft ads. (laughs) <laughs> I just think now we needed the more danceable Bond anthem. I miss when Bond anthem sounded like something you could jet ski to. I miss when they like really led the charge into a movie. Because, by the way, James Bond movies used to start with him like skiing off a cliff or something. And the music would match that energy. This song, to me, feels like something you want to hear while looking for your lost dog in the rain. This is a song I want to hear when I think to myself, Buster's not coming back. Mm. Um, additionally, her vocal... And I know it's. I know she has a great voice. The vocal to me sounds like a little kid waking up in the night and telling their mom about a bad dream she they had, and uh, it just isn't. It isn't lighting me up for an international caper. I just the self seriousness is a little too Christopher Nolan era Batman for me.
0: I I, I just miss the uh, uh, the joy of Bond. Well, I will tell you that I think Miss Billy ate this song. I really. I do. I mean, I love the belt. At the end, uh, I think that the song is sort of haunting and measured, and sort of noir-like. And like, I will say that I am sick of the sort of self-serious Bonds, and I'm glad this Daniel Craig's final Bond. I hope that after this, we can get back to sort of like a fun, escapist Bond. Uh, as much as I love like Casino Royale, and I am a um, apologist for Quantum of Solace. I will say that I feel that the Pierce Brosnan ones are the ones I miss the most because they were very fun.
4: Yeah. And he, ha- he had a sly, uh, I don't want to say camp to him, but snaz—that That is what I miss from a James Bond
0: song, Snaz. I don't know. I think that this has the qualities of a very sort of haunting James Bond song. No, by I think the it way- does what Writings on the Wall thought it was doing.
4: I personally find them very similar. But by the way, did you call that a belt at the end of that song? Yes. What What it is is a light bleat. <laughs> I say that affectionately. Billie <laughs> Eilish, one of our leading bleaters.
3: <laughs> a billy goat, truly. There we are. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's the same thing that I think she did at her Oscars performance where I was like, girl, I can't hear what you are singing <laughs> because you're singing at a fifth below I, what I think is your range. So I think it's a beautiful song. I ride the line between you guys. It's a beautiful song. I think it has that menacing, scary sort of tonality. But I wanted something to snap to. I wanted something jazzier. I wanted something something new out of her instead of something that I like that that feels like a first cut, like a demo of a song.
0: Well, what are your favorite Bond
4: themes? Well, the the greatest Bond theme of all time is "Nobody Does It Better" from the Spy Who Loved Me.
0: I knew you would say Miss
4: Carly <laughs> Simon's. Can and you that, believe that it?
0: Is, that is in my top five, but it is not. The best Bond
4: thing. Well, Tom York it's, said it's the sexiest song ever written. Have to agree. Um, all right, Tom York. <laughs> you don't even like Radiohead. Moving along. <laughs> Wait, would you say uh, 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 not Goldeneye? Goldeneye is a great song. I would say Diamonds Are Forever. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, I like it. Uh, miss Bassey. No, th- that's what I'm saying. Grandeur. That's I mean, what I miss in a song. She has
0: a poet. She's an icon. She's a legend. She was the moment. Uh, Thunderball, I think, is a good song. Tom Jones. Yeah. It, it's it's okay. That's I'll what allow I'm talking that.
4: About, corniness. Snaz. I'm yeah. going to lay down the word snaz for everybody. That's what I want. You know, like,
0: a, a, a kind of uh, uh, a gross, uh, <laughs> luxurious Of course. I mean, I sexuality. love The World Is Not Enough. I think that's one of Garbage's best songs. Oh, yeah. I, th- I That's love kind li- of halfway between the two worlds I'm talking about. Okay. You know, I love like Live a- and Let Die. We'll get this. I love this
3: game. I love Skyfall. I do love Skyfall, Skyfall's and that is an one, that
0: is one of Lewis's problems. He does not like Skyfall. Another I'm going to again this,
3: Do you hate things Adele, that are new? Adele, the
0: Zoloft egg, singing at us. He I, does hate things that are, hate are new. you hate things that are new? They need wow. they need sort of the must of Bell's bookshop.
3: You need to uh, knock the dust off a song before it's good.
0: <laughs> I can't believe how open the library is right now. <laughs> Shut it
4: down. <laughs> Um, uh, uh, I also love I'm a defender of The Living Daylights I think that's a fun cut kind of, it's not anthemic but I think it's a fun song that again you can daylights. jet ski
0: too, which is to which A point Kill of, though is great
4: I think it's okay I've never been a Duran Duran person I know yeah The Taste where is it well Gra- I, I'm a fan of Grace Jones in that movie she's one of my favorite it. Um, she's great yeah she's got like that rad trapezoid face okay <laughs> I also do like GoldenEye Miss Tina Turner. Have you heard the Nicole Scherzinger cover? I have. Where
0: she is um, caterwauling, but I do think it's good. I love caterwauling Bond covers. Fergie's Live and Let Die cover (laughs) is a beautiful caterwaul where she then jumps into the air and is swung around by a rope. I think it might just top her... um, today's show appearance where she did cartwheels doing barracuda i'm glad we shed a light on that a couple of we weeks did. ago yeah some people discovered that so if you have not seen fergie performing live and let die i believe it was at some like cbs bond tribute special it is one of the most insane things i've ever seen
4: i do regret the fact that pink has taken over the stunt space and pop music Like, that used to be Fergie, and it used to be very DIY. It's why Fergie's not eating. That's
0: what I'm saying. (laughs) Let Fergie eat. (laughs) Pink, let her on the trapeze. Yeah, right. A (laughs) couple of lessons at the Santa Monica Pier, she'll fit right in. Anyway, I like the Billy song. And I also would just posit that... You like the song a bit better once you get visuals or like a live performance or you see how it fits into the movie.
4: I'm sure it'll be opening credits that are somber and super sepia. I mean, I don't need to see it, but go on.
0: (laughs) All right.
3: Okay. My keep it this week goes to the whole Wendy Williams situation, but Mm. not just what Wendy Williams said, but her apology and then, of course, Twitter's response. So Wendy Williams on her show last week was going on about, and she actually singled out a man in the audience, about riffing on how gay men shouldn't wear women's clothing, just the goofiness of that in her opinion. And also that she's quoted saying that men shouldn't wear women's clothes because they don't get a menses every 28 days. First off, I... Wendy Williams, I forget that she has a show other than Ira was just recently on it. I forget <laughs> that that woman still exists, and I thought that she had ratings because TVs would just get left on in nursing homes. Like <laughs> I don't understand who is still watching Wendy Williams. But then when she makes that joke, you see the whole audience roar into laughter. Like nobody's clocking. Oh, that's trans exclusionary. Oh, that's extremely cis normative. So I know it's a different world. I know that's not a world that I exist in, and I I can't. I guess I can't hold Wendy to that.
0: Critique. Daytime TV is a whole other world, by it's the hell. way. Cause, or even you probably get this on like late night with like Kimmel things. I feel like the people who go to specifically sit in the audience for TV shows are someone a whole other breed Someone who's free human. at
3: 3 o'clock? Well,
0: yes. I, I, that's what that is. <laughs> well, I think they're
3: very
4: specifically a lot of the time out-of-towners. Yes.
0: Yeah. You yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting you know, yes. like,
3: a taste of Hollywood so mm-hmm. they go to see Wendy mm-hmm. or
0: Ellen. Or... And so they will cackle at the Wendy Williams thing because it's like, They're not interacting with, like, queer trans people. uh, Ever. ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So that happens. That ordeal goes down. Of course, Twitter has a backlash. And then Wendy posts, like, a three-minute video of her sitting in a robe while she's, like, just gotten her makeup done, giving a long and very measured sad apology. Like, it sounded very earnest. But at no point does she go – no point does she clear up the actual meat of the issue, which is that she's excluding trans people and then redefining what – we have, as a society has decided what woman means. No, you know
0: I love my gears. Come on, come Always on. You You know you know I love my gears. That's my Wendy Williams. That's,
3: it's also just
4: <laughs> what the hell is even remotely remarkable about a, a, a guy wearing a dress at this point? I, I don't know. know. Yeah, it's like saying don't put plants in that corner of the room. Why? Right. Yeah.
3: It's like d- yeah. Things
0: occur. Who cares? Yeah. Very 1980s. That's, especially when she'll just like roll out in some sketchers and like like a fur coat sometimes. It's like, sis, let them do fashion. <laughs>
3: <laughs> and then, of course, Twitter was irritated, as Twitter is known to do. And I feel like I'm happy she apologized, but it wasn't sincere enough. Like it didn't actually handle what she was apologizing for. She just knew she had to say sorry.
0: What's wild is that Wendy sort of has these moments that I feel like happen in the culture all the time. You're either sharing a meme of her from the show of her doing something mm-hmm. that's sort of wild or she has a controversy like this. It was because right before I went on the show, that was the week that she had made fun of Joaquin Phoenix's. For his left, left lip. Oh yeah. my gosh. And so
3: she's just like <laughs> What are we doing, girl? It's like a cycle of learning, but then she still keeps her show but doesn't learn anything.
4: Yes. And of course recently Wendy Williams made a very strange, callous joke about the death of Drew Carey's ex-fiance who uh, died because her ex-boyfriend was arrested and charged with her murder after she she was found unresponsive below a balcony with injuries consistent with a fall. Wendy Williams, in talking about this story, made a come-on-down joke about her. And so i mean is she
0: vincent price Yeah, (laughs) literally a ghoul
4: (laughs) at times there are times when i guess you're just talking on stage and you have to fill the space with something and you say the wrong
0: thing but truly i mean i I, in recent history i can't think of a wronger thing to say well it's it's, speaking of that it's like what's also sort of weird about the Woody williams show is when you watch it her segments of the hot topics right it's It's not really, like, enough topics to fill time often. Like, a topic will come up, and it'll be something that she wants to talk about that maybe she might not even know anything about. I remember, like, when Phoebe Waller-Bridge won her Emmys, uh, she was like, Phoebe Waller-Bridge, anybody see Fleabag? (laughs) I don't know what that is, but congrats to you, girl. Or, like, she'll talk about, like, how she is trying to watch, like, um, Power, but, like, stars isn't working or something and like she'll just be like having conversations with like the audience or her producer who's off camera and uh, (laughs) just sort of like filling time. Just shooting the shit on her show and it's so wild to me and I feel like when you have that sort of atmosphere uh, you can say wild things and that's live, it's not a podcast when we shoot the shit we can cut it and (laughs) we do
3: cut a lot of things
0: Love It cuts half of his show
4: (laughs) (laughs) well I mean it's interesting though because that is to me what remains novel about Wendy Williams is okay even though we all live on Twitter where everyone's just saying the first thing that comes to mind there is something about television and people responding to pop culture like daily pop culture with frankness and honesty that still feels uh, rare to me. You know what I mean? I still think of when people are reporting on entertainment, just this feeling of gushy enthusiasm for everything, the way you think of normal red carpet reportage or like the E! Network. Like no one's ever really saying like, thought that movie sucked. You know what I mean? They're like, mm-hmm. they're always excited for the new project and they can't really be honest about it. Mm-hmm. Where So Wendy Williams, I think, still fills a void in, a, in an interesting way where she's just like glancing at pop culture news and being like who cares occasionally which unfortunately is still refreshing in some regards but also sets the groundwork for her saying stupid things every once in a while (laughs) I don't mean to excuse any of those comments whatsoever no not at all I didn't even know about the Drew Carey thing and that is like ghoul-ish. I said it. It's ghoulish, And the audience didn't respond at all, at least at that point. At least good, So in case, if you were were trying to gain back some faith in Wendy Williams' audience in the
0: Uh the studio.
3: Now I can comfortably go to her show. That's right. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much. The audience was (laughs) like, ooh, girl, you told her. (laughs) Anyway, my keep it is to a specific person in a show that I'm currently obsessed with. It is McMillions and it is on HBO. And if you don't know about, um... McMillions. It is based on basically the story that nobody really won the McDonald's Monopoly game For several years, there was a small circle of scammers who, for more than a decade, were swindling McDonald's out of the prize money. Um, And I think if you've been to McDonald's, you know that, like, every year they sort of had that Monopoly game where you get um, pieces and then you sort of put it around a Monopoly board. And, like, they have prizes like a million dollars or, like, a new car or, like, a home. When I was a kid, I was obsessed with McDonald's Same. Monopoly because it was it, it was so
4: collectible and like big colorful board and stuff and I thought this is the only way I will ever win a Sea-Doo like, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
3: <laughs> you get two little pieces with one medium drink it was amazing yes. and also like
4: they would bait you so well because yeah. they would give you Park Place and yes. so you're like well here I am one piece away from Boardwalk and there's like two Boardwalks printed in the entire universe yeah, yeah.
0: and it's um, and I feel like I always only ever won like a free cheeseburger or fries right
3: yeah I don't want to destroy the show, but I want to know, it, it shows the actual scammers that yes, ended yes. up winning? Yes, it shows
0: the investigation on the scammers. It goes from the FBI first finding out that there might be a scam, and um, from what I've seen so far, convincing McDonald's to run the game another time so that they could find a winner, um, and then uh, one of the agents, uh, who my keep it is to, Doug Matthews, he goes undercover as the director... Um, as they go to this person's house and sort of like get him to talk about how he won the game and whatever. So they have this footage um, and it's fascinating just sort of like seeing uh, everything sort of unfold. Um, There have been three episodes so far and it it really is unfolding everything and this sort of like crime that goes (laughs) through so many people in a really interesting way. So I really do love the show. I will just say that FBI agent Doug Matthews who is on the show is doing too goddamn much. Oh, as like a as a talking head? Yes, as a talking head. And he's the one who went undercover. He was so excited to go undercover. He's just talking so excitedly about this case. And obviously he's wild, and it's why we're watching the show. But um just thinking in the context of like an overzealous FBI agent um, as a fun character. It's sort of wild to me, you know. Like once you're done watching the show and you peel back, like this man should maybe not have his job. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like he when he meet when they meet the McDonald's executives to talk about how um, they're being scammed. Like he was like, "This is boring to me." I came in in a gold suit. Oh, so he's he's uh, he's an like eccentric. Who, he's an of... eccentric who's sort of like really enjoying his moment in this documentary. And I'm like. <laughs> You got to play it cool like the blowjob guy in the Firefest documentary. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
4: Slow roll us into your yeah. crazy story. Don't oversell it.
3: But also, yeah. imagine the insanity you'd be pushed to if you're an FBI agent and you're only working on the McDonald's case. Yeah. You know?
0: I, I just need to play Cash Dials doing too much for him because I'm like, <laughs> mm. you are doing too much in the show. The show was very good. I'm gripped. Um, but he, he's so fucking extra. Yeah. To light keep it, but like. Yeah.
3: I feel it. I feel it. Chill, baby.
0: And how many? We have a, a couple more episodes. There's, there's thing. three so far. God. All right, I'm gonna catch up on that. If you tell
3: Doug he's doing too much, he'll tell you you ain't doing enough. <laughs> <laughs> there you Lyrics. go. There you go.
0: <laughs> anyway, um, thank you so much to Heather Graham for joining us this week. Uh, that's our show. <laughs> Keep it is a product of Crooked Media. Caroline Rustin is our producer. It's Caroline, like the princess, the one you don't care about. Our editor is Bill Lance, and Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Nadine Melkonian, for filming and editing our video content every week.
4: Imagine bold, naturally-aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger